The Gist is an independent podcast. You know that. You value that. That's why you listen. And we are going to remain independent no matter what. But independence is worth it, but also comes at a cost. So we have a subscription service. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to get The Gist ad-free or to get bonus episodes of interviews of The Gist and a trivia night. There's also a level where you can commission a spiel as if you were a doge in Italy or a raj or anything that ends in a just sound in one of the nations of the world where you commission humble artists to do your bidding. It's all available at subscribe.mikepesca.com. Consider it planting a flag for the very spirit of independence. It's Friday, May 19th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. The funeral of Jordan Neely took place in Manhattan today, Harlem in fact. Neely, the 30-year-old homeless man who was choked to death by former Marine Daniel Penny on the subway on May 1st, was eulogized by the Reverend Al Sharpton. Sharpton quoted scripture, offered condolences, and talked about the need for reform of city services. He is eloquent. The crowd responded. We keep criminalizing people with mental illness. People keep criminalizing people that need help. They don't need abuse. They need help. Then Sharpton moved on to the racial justice part of his eulogy. Several times he emphasized that Neely was not a threat and offered no provocation. That is, of course, the crux of the factual issues that will decide the manslaughter case currently facing Daniel Penny. Sharpton offered a hypothetical in which the races of the killer and the deceased were reversed. If Jordan was impersonating Elvis Presley, if Jordan had been a different race and they had him impersonating Elvis, and a black guy put Elvis impersonated in a chokehold and two black guys held him down. They would not have let that black guy leave the precinct that night. So it is, of course, a hypothetical that's impossible to prove. But there are, in fact, many cases in New York City with white victims and black suspects where black suspects were not initially charged, free to go home from the station house. It's not hard to find them. Perhaps the last exceptionally high-profile murder in New York was the December 2019 stabbing death of a white Barnard College student by three black boys in their early teens. What happened then? New York City police say a 14-year-old suspected in the murder of college student Tessa Majors is free for now after questioning. Majors was stabbed to death in a park near Barnard College earlier this month. Police say the 14-year-old had been missing for nearly a week after running off before he could be interviewed. It's routine procedure for the district attorney to assess the threat to the community and the threat of flight and wait until the evidence is all in order and then to charge. Activists were incensed they waited two weeks to charge Penny. They waited eight weeks to charge the two young teens eventually convicted in the murder of that Barnard College student. But Sharpton told the cheering crowd that the delay from city officials in this case was anything but routine. I want to know who decided at the precinct to let this guy go home. I want to know who called the order that it was all right 
for this man to choke this brother to death and go home and sleep in his bed. Who gave the order that it was all right to release him? We can't live in a city where you can choke me to death with no provocation, no weapon, no threat, and you go home and sleep in your bed while my family gotta put me in a cemetery. There must be equal justice under the law. Well, Penny has been charged in circumstances that only seem unusual if you don't know or don't care about criminal procedure. And then there's the fact that the three officials ultimately answerable to the people are the district attorney who's black, the police commissioner who's black, the mayor who is black, which of course doesn't mean that there can't be a racist power structure driving events. Certainly the race of the victim and the killer can't be discounted in assessing the motivation of conservative politicians calling Penny a hero. Ron DeSantis specifically came in for scorn in the eulogy. And I also understand that when you get a civil rights leader to preach your funeral, you're signing up for the preaching about civil rights. I do think, however, that criticism of city services failing to help a desperate homeless man, even if Jordan Healy represents the hardest of cases, that's a fair criticism and to me a fair call for justice. The criticism of the police and the district attorney in this matter, who are, after all, charging the killer with a very serious crime, but just waited to make sure they didn't rush the charge in a delicate case, that seems like a less solid criticism. It might be cold of me to focus on the politics of the matter on a day to mourn, but I wasn't the one who thrust a political critique into the argument, into the eulogy. If Sharpton and the other officials who were there think that this is the time to talk about criminal justice, I say okay to them. I just think justice for Jordan Neely may not necessarily lay in the criminal realm. On the show today, it's an Antoine Tig, but first, President Biden told other G7 leaders today that the U.S. supported training Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets. This is a move the U.S. has resisted. It's just the latest way in which U.S. policies are having a huge effect on the war in Ukraine and as a result, the fate of Europe overall. The U.S. is getting so, so powerful My next guest argues that Europe should take notice and take steps to assert itself. Jeremy Shapiro is the director of research at the European Council on Foreign Relations, a former member of the Obama State Department. He's penned a critique of the European strategy to hide behind Big Brother United States. And the phrase he uses is vassal state. Join us with the unvacillating Jeremy Shapiro up next. A recent article, an argument, you know how I love a good provocative argument, caught my eye. And the thesis was that Europe was weak. Okay, that's not so shocking. I see a lot of analyses of Europe that notes the challenges and weaknesses of that continent. But guess who was strong? It was the United States. And I was kind of shocked and a little ashamed that I didn't realize how, say, the economic fates of the two geopolitical entities had diverged. Europe and the United States were almost economically equal at the time of the 2008 Great Recession. Since then, the United States economy has gained roughly 50%, where the Europeans have gained maybe 20%. The major 
thesis involved Ukraine, however, and military strength contrasting the continent of Europe and the country of America. And there was a phrase, a word in the middle of this thesis that I hadn't seen before that I'm going to say to you and then define. And that thesis word was vassalization. Now, this is not vacillating. That's what I thought it meant. But vassalization is turning an entity into a vassal, a vassal state doing the bidding of another. The title from this article, one of the co-authors is Jeremy Shapiro of the European Council on Foreign Relations, is The Art of Vassalization, How Russia's War on Ukraine Has Transformed Transatlantic Relations. Jeremy Shapiro is the research director of the aforementioned council. Thanks for joining us on The Gist, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, Mike. What is the general orientation of the European Council on Foreign Relations? It could be anything, good or ill. Yeah, it probably is, in fact. Uh, the general orientation is, is that we're an organization which has offices across Europe in seven different European cities, and we promote a more uh, unified, coherent, and purposeful European foreign policy. Yeah. And so you have experience at the Brookings Institution, at the State Department under Barack Obama. So that tells me something. Is this one of those examples where you state things pretty provocatively to make the point? Or how much do you agree with the idea put forth in your own paper that (laughs) Europe is turning into a vassal of the United States? Yeah, I think it's 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 meant to be a bit provocative, and it's describing a trend, I would say, rather than an end state. So uh, I wouldn't make the claim that ver- that Europe has become a vassal uh, as yet, although certain countries are are further along than others. But I think what what I'm describing in the paper is a process through which Europe is becoming ever more dependent on the United States for its security. And at the end of the day, if you're dependent as a nation uh, on an outside power for your security, that is, that is essentially the, a state of vassalization. And you can, you can have a lot of um, very kind words around that. You can, you, and you, the United States hasn't abused this position by and large occasionally, but not that much. Um, and so it's not a daily reality for European leaders of the European publics that they have to feel this degree of subjugation. Uh, but it's, but it's there and it's increasing. The trends are really there. And so I think it's very important to sort of call it out because if the ECFR and in my project is to develop a more coherent and unified foreign policy and basically to have a, a Europe which can represent its own interests, talking to anybody, talking to China, talking to Russia, China, the United States. The biggest problem for that right now is the United States, as big a problem as China and Russia are as well. Mm -hmm. And as you write, since the 2008 financial crisis, the U.S. has become ever more powerful relative to its European allies. The transatlantic relationship has not become more balanced, but more dominated by the U.S. How much of this is due to the fact that there is a war in Europe and for decades now, the countries of Europe have allowed the United States to provide security. I think for the most part, they've said, wow, what a cost savings to us. What a benefit that the United States would take this active role. And what really are the costs? So that is my question. 
this is now a time of war. How much of that imbalance is due to the fact that we have this historical anomaly, relatively speaking, of a war in Europe? Well, I mean, I guess in the first instance, I'm not sure that a war in Europe is is, is an anomaly. It hasn't happened that much recently. Uh, yeah. But the war in Ukraine is, has been, has revealed and accentuated the the Ukraine the European dependence on the United States, but it didn't create it. Um, the, the that has been a feature of the post war world. But what's what's interesting about it is that it has gotten more so in the last fifteen years, quite a bit more so. If you were to sort of go back into two thousand six or something. And people would say, well, uh, Europe is growing in power. It's growing in relative economic size to the, to the U.S. And it should be able to provide for its own defense. And it probably will want to. But those things haven't happened uh, in the last 15 or 20 years. The opposite has happened. Uh, and to me, I locate this in two, in two basic causes. One is, as you mentioned, that Europe has actually grown less, less powerful relative to the United States on both uh, on you know pretty much any economic and military measure that you can find but secondly that Europe has not really found the unity and the trust within itself to replace the United States as the sort of organizer of their security so you know I'm, we've been talking this conversation about Europe as if it was actually a thing but in fact it's really a collection of of nation states uh it's not a, it's not an analog to the United States and uh, there's quite a bit of distrust within Europe. Um, and by and large, not, not exclusively, but by and large, most of the governments of Europe would rather rely on the United States than rely on their neighbor. Right. So you in the paper point out how Eastern Europe might be taking a strong stance against Putin and shaming some of the larger military countries like Germany and France of Western Europe. But this just all adds up to the fractious nature of the quote unquote union. Uh, So to acknowledge there is no Europe, but also that Europe arguing with each other is, you know, I I don't know if it's a feature, not a bug, but it's certainly so inherent in the system that what else could uh, even a fan of Europe expect? Yeah, that's a good question. I I, th- I think it's true that quite a lot of people don't expect anything else. Um, but you know, as we mentioned, uh, first of all, that's our project. But secondly, yes. I think that um, that the United States is 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 the, the 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 domination of the United States is a consequence of this disunity, but it is also a cause. Because frankly, uh, nobody ever gets together and creates greater unity with their neighbors unless they have an, unless they need to, um, mm-hmm. unless they have something they need to defend themselves against. And the United States is a very convenient and very useful uh, alternative option. And the United States has some advantages uh, relative to. Uh, for, for say Poland has some advantages relative to Germany to perform this role because um, they're very far away and they're quite a bit more disinterested and quite a bit more uninvolved in say Polish domestic politics and the uh, Polish economy than um, than Germany is and so uh, the so the so the the poles very clearly prefer to to depend on the United States than to depend on Germany. But my argument, and I think a, a pretty common one, 
is that um, this is a dangerous position to take because the United States is uh, the 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 obverse of its disinterest is that it it might well end up uh, moving back, uh, folding back onto itself, not being a little bit too self-absorbed to really support European security, or just might have priorities elsewhere, probably in right. China or the Indo-Pacific, and. And the United States has been drifting as a, as a polity away from Europe for, for at least three presidential administrations. Um, and the Ukraine war has, you know, pulled it back to some degree. But, uh, if you look at the U.S. national security strategy, it sort of implies that that's a bit of a dead cat bounce. Yeah. Right. In other words, uh, Biden comes in. He also wants to pivot to Asia. The war in Ukraine is thrust upon him. He takes a leadership role, but it's not what he wanted. No, they've been very clear about that. And if you look at the national security, U.S. national security strategy, which was released since the Ukraine war, it basically says, yeah, China's our thing. We're going over there. Uh, so um, Europeans, to my mind, should be taking that into account and should recognize that, that probably they're going to have to depend on each other. Uh, that that's not that bad, that they have a lot of mechanisms for that, that they've actually set up this European Union, which is a spectacular forum for cooperation, and they have uh, very similar values and interests. And so um, they can do that. It's not, I think they would prefer the United States, but the United States is not really going to be on option for that much longer. Is it in the United States interest for Europe to be? Uh, not unified? I mean, because I can imagine, well, if they're unified behind the United States, great, but disunity allows the United States to pursue its policy agenda without really worrying what Europe has to say. Yeah, you know, I struggled with this question a lot. I struggle with it still, and I struggled with it in the um, when I was in the State Department. Um, you know, for any given, let's say, Assistant Secretary of State who has a job to get done, on some, you know, sort of medium level issue of, you know, of economic relations with Europe. Um, the f disunity can be super helpful, right? If you, if you're not getting somewhere with the French, you can go to the polls and say, hey, can you help us with these guys? And right, and, right. That's what diplomats do. If you don't have the ability to play one side off the uh, other, why, why do you even get into diplomacy? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fun. And, you know, and no yeah, country is. No country is better at dividing Europe, has more assets for dividing Europe than the United States. I mean, in the State Department, we used to do it two or three times before lunch. Uh, but um, the problem is that from a long-term perspective, this is not good for the United States. And I think a lot of uh, higher-level U.S. officials have recognized that. Because what we're doing is creating, in a, if we're creating a bunch of vassals, if we're creating a bunch of countries that depend on us, they're not investing in their own defense. They're not investing in their own capabilities. Uh, they're relying on us. And I think the only way that Europe will ever um, realize its potential for being a foreign policy partner with the United States is as if it has this independent capacity. If it's able to express its own interests and defend them, that will create more arguments with the United States. But, you know, like any good relationship, if you, if you, if you're not getting out of it what you need uh, and you're not able to express your arguments and then resolve them, then it's not going to be an effective relationship. 
Mm-hmm. In Europe, for many years, the idea was, well, do we really have to worry about the United States so much? They're very fractious. They don't have their stuff together. So whatever debates that we're having, they're kind of a basket case. But take me up to 2023. How united is the United States on the most important issues affecting the Europeans versus how united the Europeans are? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, You know, the... If you sort of look at Biden administration policy from a European perspective, and of course the issue that's dominating Europe right now is the is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's it's yeah. pretty it's pretty solid. Um, but if you look at the U.S. presidential, the Republican presidential candidates, if you look at Donald Trump and Mike DeSantis, who seem to be the you know the the prohibitive front runners in the Republican nomination, they have an extremely different policy. And um, and uh, I would argue that you know it's it's not entirely clear, but that Donald Trump would not be really very interested in in continuing the Biden administration's support of Ukraine in the war. Yes, that that is true. But you know what? I thought it was very interesting that Kevin McCarthy, who what are who are the um, exemplars? Who are the totems of or who represents a fractious United States? You would point to certainly Donald Trump, but Kevin McCarthy. Okay, so he and Joe Biden, or he's at loggerheads. He goes to Israel. A Russian asks him. We know that uh, you don't support uh, the current unlimited and uh, uncontrolled. Uh, supplies of weaponry and aid to Ukraine. So can you comment, is it possible if in the near future uh, the U.S. policy regarding sending weaponry to Ukraine will change? He articulates just a clear uh, dedication to pushing back Putin and to the people of Ukraine in a way that could have been scripted by Biden's speechwriters. No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. And we will continue to support because the rest of the world sees it just as it is. So to me, that says forever the surface level, and there are deep divisions in the United States, on this issue, right now, the most important issue to Europe, uh, United States seems to be pretty unified. No, I don't think I would accept that. I, I would accept that uh, within the U.S. Congress, uh, there is a fair amount of unity on this question. Um, and within uh, and within the administration, there is. So there isn't really a threat to this policy in the next, uh, before the presidential election. Uh, So I guess I accept it to that degree. But frankly, I think that the American public uh, at best doesn't really care about this, at at most isn't terribly interested. Uh, and, And you see that in the Republican presidential candidates' approach to the problem. I don't think it's a surprise that they have a very different approach than Republican congressional leaders, because they are very focused on what on what the public's, what their public's wants. And if you look at the polls of the Republican base, uh, about Ukraine, they just, they don't, they don't like it at all. And, and I guess to agree, a degree they're following Donald Trump, but to a degree they are leading Donald Trump. Uh, I, I don't really know which one it is. It's a sort of interaction, but, uh, but the point is that I think there is, uh, we should expect this is what Donald Trump says. This is what his public supports. Um, that if he came into power, he would radically change that 
policy. Um, and I think we see that from uh, from his intellectual supports, from Tucker Carlson, and from uh, and from the people around him. So I don't see any reason to disbelieve him. Mm -hmm. So I guess the bottom line is that you know if you're a European, it's it's you can be quite satisfied with the Biden administration, and by and large they are, um, but. You should be quite nervous about where the United States is going over the medium to long term. And, uh, you know, if you talk to them, if you, if you get them just a little bit drunk, they will admit that, but they're not really doing anything about it. Jeremy Shapiro is the director of research at the European Council on Foreign Relations, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He served in the U.S. State Department from 2009 to 2013. That's Obama's second term. And I commend you to his recent piece, The Art of Vassalization, How Russia's War on Ukraine Has Transformed Transatlantic Relations, which he co-wrote with Yana Puglarin. Jeremy, thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. And now it's the Antoine Tig, our name for a three-week period in which we review everything that anyone ever thought about the gist that somehow we could get a hold of. So this is the Reddit page, my Twitter page, an essay wiretaps, all of it. And then I will award a lobstar, the greatest person who interacted with us at the gist. So first, let me start by talking about my being wrong. I was wrong about Bud. And I talked about Bud and the protest against Dylan Mulvaney becoming a spokesperson for the beer brand. I talked about that more than three weeks ago. So it is outside the ambit of this particular Antwentig. However, the facts began to change after I released my original findings and within the last few weeks. So what happened? On the day that Kid Rock blasted a bunch of beer with a machine gun. That was April 4th. Bud was trading at 66. Let's go to May 4th. Bud was trading at 65.9. So yeah, the media could talk about a one-day blip. And since overall Anheuser-Busch InBev is worth billions and billions of dollars, a one-day blip, a one-day dip, uh, the drop of a stock, which can happen for a lot of reasons, by a dollar can be said to cost them a billion, a billion and a half in the valuation of their stock. Don't look at it that way. I said, and I meant it. Also, let me say that overall, the company issued their quarterly results, and they said in the first quarter, of 2023, Anheuser-Busch and Bev beat expectations, delivering 13.2% revenue increase. So all of this kerfuffle about Dylan Mulvaney's picture being on a can of Bud Light seemed not to be a big deal and not to redound in the massive brewer's economic pain. However, new facts have begun to emerge. The backlash did not go away. And while InBev is a global brand, a giant brand. Bud Light is a small but important part of it, and the protests and change in consumer tastes might be more of a permanent thing than I thought. The parent company, so let's go back to the last weeks of April, they sold $71.5 million worth of Bud Light, but that was a dip of 
23% from the year before. Even Budweiser is hurting. They sold 31 million of that. I didn't realize Bud Light outsold Budweiser two to one. Anyway, other brands within the Anheuser-Busch family like Budweiser and Michelob Ultra and Bush Light, they were dropping too. And this drop seems to be continuing. So it really has not cost them a big hit in market cap. That's true. And I'm happy to have warned you away from those stories about market cap. But this protest is going on and it is having an effect and it is having an effect, especially on the American part of Anheuser-Busch in Bev's operations. I guess this goes to show that a protest is more feasible when the loyalty to the beverage is based about, I'd say 1% on taste and 99% on whatever associations drinkers have with that brand. I talked about Daniel Penny within the last three weeks or within the period of the Antoine Tig and Jordan Neely. It's the most reaction I've gotten in a while. Particularly useful on the Reddit page was Rick Andino, a former Green Beret, who wrote in to talk about the difference between an air choke and a blood choke. And Andino said even when he received training, it was abundantly clear to all the Marines that a blood choke could kill you in just a few minutes. Penny used a blood choke. A correction The word is pronounced corroborate, not corroborate. Corroborate. Kind of said it both ways. Also, another correction. I got a key detail wrong about the Edmund Fitzgerald. Now, what I got wrong was not about the load of iron ore, 26,000 tons or more. Or, as I might have said at the time, as I I was saying, corroborate. Maybe I said the ton of iron ore instead of iron ore. I don't know. I don't know what I was saying. But I should have been saying Lake Superior is the one that never gives up her dead. A segment that also got a lot of attention was Giannis Antetokounmpo's epic fail denial. Yes, Antetokounmpo meets Antoine Tig, Uh uh-oh. You as listeners hated it. You absolutely hated it. But I stand by my take, which is the new part of my take. Ethan Strauss, who I had on, and I discussed Giannis, the great Bucks player, asserting that there is no failure in sports. And the reaction range from it was a stupid question to ask to, I was being too literal. Ethan and I were both being overly caustic about sports being a process and a process of improvement. However, what I ruminate on is not my opinion, which, you know, can be restated something like, of course, Giannis is going to frame uh, such a question in the best possible terms, but a more realistic way of framing it might have been something like, yes, of course, uh, the season wasn't a failure. It ended in our ultimate failure, which is to win a championship as it is with every team every year. I would also say that given our potential as a team, we undershot that. And to be honest, we did undershoot it more than many other teams in the league because we essentially had the most potential and maybe should have won the championship and lost in the first round. So does that mean there's no failure in sports? Anyway, Giannis didn't give that answer. He doesn't have to give that answer. What was interesting to me is, why did everyone who listened to the gist hate it? Did I say something I didn't mean? Did I frame it in a weird way? Why didn't all of Ethan Strauss's listeners and the readers of the House on Strauss substack hate it? And I think the key is there's a slightly different listenership um, of each. But Ethan's take, Ethan's article did not call it Giannis's epic fail denial, as ours did. He framed it as a means of success. He did not 
light upon Giannis saying failure, denying that there was failure. The title of his article, the first sentence of his article, was not obsessed with failure. It was talking about success and greatness. How Strauss titled the article was, Don't Rob Us of Failure. So there's something there that is implying that failure has merit. Don't take it away from us. What does he mean? Well, you could just see it in the first sentence. Having just seen Steph Curry score 50 in game seven against the Kings, I'm reminded that I love, of all things, failure. Huh? Well, huh? Failure as a necessary condition for greatness. So in our talk, Ethan and I seemed like we were coming down hard and being, you know, a bit churlish or a bit unforgiving, or since we both know that no athlete is going to say, yes, it was a great failure, a bit unfair. But if you frame it as, hey, you love sports, I love sports, this great thing we just saw, which was Steph Curry scoring 50 in a game seven, it's all about the positivity and love of sports. And you know what we need? You know what we need to make that sweetness oh so sweet? We need the bitterness. We need a bit of the sourness. You know, we need the failure. It was just a generally more positive way to frame it. And I think if we did, maybe we wouldn't have gotten, I would say, a 100% disapproval rating on Reddit Tomatoes. And now to the Lobstar. The Lobstar is the best person who I've interacted with in these past three weeks. There are many to choose from, but I'm going to choose a person on Twitter. Don't know the person's real name. Lynn, L-Y-N-X-S-L, at Linsel, Linksel, Linksel. Anyway, their handle is repeal the second amendment. Sure, would be hard, but if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because of someone with a flag of St. Lucia in their Twitter profile. But I realized I got some pushback from Linksel about what he or she called my AOC obsession. And I said, you know, uh, Linksel said, not everything she says or does needs your analysis or response. To which I replied, well, since we were talking about bring murder charges against Daniel Penny, and she was the most prominent person to say that, it would be really weird and irresponsible for me not to cite her. But as I did that, I said to myself, and I think it's because of the distinctiveness of her, the picture on Twitter, the St. Lucia flag, certainly. I said, I know Linksel. I've had several excellent interactions with Linksel, and indeed I have. When I debuted my old show, Not Even Mad, Linksel explained why they wouldn't listen, what kind of show they might listen to. And I said at one point, it's a good idea. What are the unbridgeable impasses that can only be settled by winning an election and enacting our policies, right? This idea that we always all can't get along. It might be interesting to think about what are the issues upon which we can't get along that we need an election to settle. And then Linksel says, yes, and what are the bridgeable ones? Sorry if I spammed you, hashtag not a Twitter expert. And I said, no, you gave me a good idea. Indeed, Linksel did. And a lot of our Twitter interactions over the years have been a complaint or a pushback or raising a point and me acknowledging it and then ending in a somewhat pleasant Twitter landing spot. Why not? Why not do this all the time? I know Linksel's in my corner and now I say I'm in your corner. You, Linksel, are the lop star of this Antoine Tig. And as such, we will get in touch with you. We will get your address and we will send you our actual physical lobster. They all wear a gist hoodie on social media, on the Reddit page. I've been tweeting some of the pictures of past lobsters who have been the recipient of Ippolito, the lobster. There are many versions of Ippolito. Linksel, you will be getting one. 
And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the CLO of Peachfish Productions. Yeah, it's Lobstar. The Gist is presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.